Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 448 for June 21st, 2015. This week, password management company LastPass says that it found hackers on its network, and I'll explain why this isn't a surprise or something to worry about. Adobe Creative Cloud 2015 was released this week and brings several new and welcome features. In short circuits, IBM fully commits to an open source application. Kaspersky warns about some high-powered malware that has set its sights high. And those who want a Microsoft Surface Hub can order it starting on July 1st. Also, in spare parts only on the website, an app designed to help with beer and wine is about to expand. Auto dealers might find an application that helps with recalls helpful. And the demand for video on demand is up. Way up. LastPass is the password management tool that I have recommended for many years. The free version is powerful, but for about a dollar a month, users have access to additional useful features. This week, LastPass notified users that its site had been hacked. That's not the story, though. The story is that nobody should be surprised, and the additional story is why users shouldn't be overly concerned. On July 12th, LastPass system administrators discovered suspicious activity on the network and blocked it. I have been expecting a message about something like that for years. As one of the larger repositories of passwords, LastPass would have to be the kind of target that would make crime dogs salivate. And there's been no small amount of panic among users, though, and some of the responses to this have been little short of silly. After finding and blocking the intrusion, LastPass system administrators looked for evidence about what the hackers might have been able to see. They found no indication that any encrypted data had been compromised. What hackers were able to obtain, however, was information about email addresses, password reminders, and some other details. Although master passwords were not exposed, LastPass is encouraging users to change these. The master password is the one that provides access to each user's account. Needless to say, I did that immediately. And that should be the end of the story because encrypted user data was not taken, and so there's no need to change passwords associated with individual accounts. LastPass, in fact, should be recognized for its prompt notification of users. Email notices were sent to users on Monday, just three days after the breach was noticed. System administrators doubtless spent many hours Saturday and Sunday investigating so that the message sent on Monday would be accurate. Additional measures have been instituted to ensure that users' passwords will remain safe, even if the investigation missed something. Any user who attempts to log on with a device that LastPass hasn't seen before or log on from a new IP address will be challenged. Before being allowed to log on from a new device or a new IP address, users will need to receive an email message from LastPass and respond to it. 
The only exceptions will be for users who have already enabled multi-factor authentication. LastPass is confident that master passwords were not exposed, and I share that confidence. The system hashes both the username and the master password on the user's computer using 5,000 rounds of pretty sophisticated algorithms. And then the system performs a second round of hashing to generate the master password authentication hash. This all happens on the user's PC, and the resulting key is sent to the LastPass server where it is used to perform an authentication check when users log in. Once the key is on the LastPass server, a salt is added, and another 100,000 rounds of hashing are performed. SALT, by the way, simply refers to a random string that is added to make the process even more secure. The key point is that LastPass noticed the intrusion promptly, blocked it, and notified users without delay. This is the way the system should have worked. The decision to require additional validation for a user who signs on from a new device or an unfamiliar IP address is a pretty clever additional step. LastPass is also cautioning users to be wary of phishing emails asking for a master password, payment information, or any other personal information. Never disclose your master password or any confidential information, says LastPass, even to someone claiming to work for LastPass. And that's one of the reasons that I still recommend LastPass. <laughs> If you're a designer, an editor, or a photographer, Adobe changed your world on Tuesday morning. As of midnight Tuesday morning, Creative Cloud 2015 became available for download on subscribers' computers. Some of the changes are big and flashy. Others just sit quietly in the background waiting to be discovered. Let's take a look at some of the standouts in brief this week. First, Adobe is now in the stock photography business with Adobe Stock. That's another strategic acquisition designed to add value to the toolbox that designers already would be hard-pressed to do without. Prior to its acquisition, Adobe stock was known as Fotolia. Now the Fotolia logo shares space with the Adobe logo. Creative Cloud subscribers have access to 40 million images that make up the Fotolia library. Not for free, of course, but on highly favorable terms. For those who need just an occasional image, the stock photos are priced at 10 bucks. But those who need more images can sign up for a $50 per month plan. But if you're a Creative Cloud member, it's going to cost you just $30. And for that $30, you can download 10 images, thereby dropping the price to $3 per image. And large shops that use Creative Cloud can choose a plan that allows 750 downloads per month for $200. If you do the math, yes, that is 26 cents per image. One question that remains concerns the dollar photo division of Fotolia. Adobe also owns it, but no decision has been made regarding its future. All dollar photo images cost, as the name suggests, $1, with a basic $10 per month plan allowing 10 downloads per month. But to get back to your photos, if you've ever taken a photo on a hazy day and wished there was some way to cut through the haze, an addition to Lightroom makes the process easy. Now this isn't a new capability, but it's a way of making an existing function a lot easier to use. 
Check the TechBiter Worldwide website and you'll see a view from a cemetery in Wheeling across the Ohio River to a hill in Ohio. I'd like the image better if the hill in the background had more detail. Photoshop and Lightroom users have been able to either add or remove haze for a long time, but the process involved numerous modifications that could be somewhat confusing even in Lightroom. Now there's a single slider in the effects panel that appears to remove haze by sharpening the image, adding contrast, and boosting colors. Or if you push the slider the other way, it can turn a bright sunny day into a foggy day. You'll see examples of that on the TechBiter Worldwide website also. And moving from Lightroom to Photoshop, designers who use Illustrator and Photoshop once had to complain about each application's inability to have more than a single workspace in any file. Illustrator gained that capability a couple of versions ago. Now it's Photoshop's turn. The ability to have multiple artboards in a single file will undoubtedly be a very welcome addition. Operationally, they're nearly identical to the artboards in Illustrator. Each artboard can be a different size, and laying these out side by side makes it possible for designers and their clients to see a high-level view of related items, website designs featuring various screen sizes, for example, or a series of printed items such as letterheads, envelopes, and business cards. Nearly every new version of Creative Cloud applications features expanded capabilities for the Mercury Rendering Engine. That's the background application that interprets the user's commands and displays the resulting image on screen. This time around, Adobe has improved the performance of the Healing Brush, the Spot Healing Brush, and the Patch Tool. Adobe says the rendering speed is more than 100 times faster than it was in CS6. Note, though, that a comparison with Creative Cloud 2015, last year's version, would be considerably less impressive. Still, anything that can keep people from waiting on the computer is a development effort very well spent. I mentioned Illustrator a moment ago. Well, now Illustrator users can actually count the number of angels dancing on a period. When you need to make a small change to a tiny area, it's helpful to be able to enlarge that tiny area so you can see what's in it. Previously, Illustrator users had to make do with a top magnification rate of only 6,400%. That's only 64 times actual size. Check the TechBiter Worldwide website. You'll see a period. You'll have to look kind of close to see it, but it's there. Then I magnify it all the way to 64,000%. 640 times actual size. So if you have a circle the size of a period in 10-point type, that circle might be something like a 30th of an inch across. Magnified to 64,000%, that tiny circle will more than fill a 19-inch monitor. Check it out. And Android gets some love this time around. Every time I'm on a call with one of Adobe's product managers, I whine about the lack of support for Android devices. Although I can still do that, I'm going to have to tone it down a little. The mobile apps that have been introduced over the past couple of years have been updated, and several are now available for Android phones. Not all of the apps have yet been ported to Android, but Adobe is committed to finishing the job. Unfortunately, though, these will be apps designed only for Android phones. Unlike iPad users, Android tablet users shouldn't expect the apps will work on their tablets anytime soon. And maybe never. 
When it's time to install Creative Cloud 2015, you'll want to know about an installation change. Adobe has instituted a change in how the installer works for this version. By default, previous versions of Creative Cloud will be removed when the 2015 version is installed. If you have a version of Creative Suite installed, it will not be removed. But the original version and the 2014 version of Creative Cloud will be removed unless you specify otherwise. In most cases, removing the previous versions makes a lot of sense because most people will want to use the latest version. Exceptions might be for people who teach Adobe applications or who support users of Adobe applications. If you want to retain the applications, it's easy enough. Just open the Advanced Installation Option dialog and deselect the Remove option. And that's a quick look at the latest from Creative Cloud. I'll have more about some of the individual applications as we move along and I learn more about them. In short circuits, here's a big irony. IBM is promoting open source software. In the days of big iron computers, IBM carefully guarded their proprietary hardware, operating systems, and software. For several years recently, IBM has been championing open source software. And now the company has committed itself to Apache Spark, calling it potentially the most significant open source project of the coming decade. IBM plans to embed Spark into its analytics and commerce platform and to offer Spark as a service on IBM Cloud. The company also plans to have more than 3,500 IBM researchers and developers work on Spark-related projects at more than a dozen labs worldwide. To donate its machine learning technology to the Spark open source ecosystem and to educate more than one million data scientists and data engineers on Spark. Spark isn't something you'll see at home though. It is technology designed for large-scale data processing. IBM says that Spark improves the performance of data-dependent apps and that it simplifies the process of developing intelligent apps that are fueled by data. IBM's Watson Health Cloud will leverage Spark as a key underpinning for its Insight platform. That platform is intended to improve response time for medical providers and researchers as they access new analytics that reference population health data. Spark will become a cloud service on IBM Bluemix to make it possible for app developers to quickly load data, model it, and derive what's called the predictive artifact to use in their app. IBM says that it has been a leader in open source innovation for decades. IBM also said in the early 1980s that it had been in the personal computer business for many years, and that prompted Apple to run an ad welcoming IBM to the business of making personal computers. Beth Smith, the general manager at IBM Analytics, says the company believes strongly in the power of open source as the basis to build value for clients. IBM, she says, is fully committed to Spark as a foundational technology platform for accelerating innovation and driving analytics across every business fundamental way. Smith says that IBM's clients will benefit as they embrace Spark to advance their own data strategies to drive business transformation and competitive differentiation. Or maybe that's just what IBM's PR department decided that she should say. Does anybody really talk like that?
IBM, NASA, and the SETI Institute are all collaborating to analyze terabytes of complex deep space radio signals using Spark's machine learning capabilities. They're hunting for patterns that might indicate the presence of intelligent extraterrestrial life. And IBM is one of four founding members of the UC Berkeley AMP Lab, where Spark was invented in 2009. Spark is characterized as agile, fast, and easy to use. If you'd like more information, check out IBM's website. Kaspersky Lab says that it has seen a new version of Dooku, malware that's been used to target high-level world leaders. Among the targeted meetings are those of what's called the P5 Plus One. That's a group of six world powers that joined the diplomatic efforts with Iran in 2006 to negotiate an end to Iran's nuclear program. The term P5 Plus One refers to the five permanent members of the UN Security Council, China, France, Russia, the United Kingdom, and the United States. And the plus one is Germany. Kaspersky Lab detected a cyber intrusion affecting several of its internal systems earlier this year. The company then launched an investigation that led to discovery of a new malware platform for one of the most skilled, mysterious, and powerful threat actors in the advanced persistent threat world, Dooku. Kaspersky researchers say they believe the attackers felt their attack would be undetectable. It included some features that hadn't been seen before and was nearly invisible. After exploiting zero-day vulnerabilities that allowed the malware to elevate its privileges to domain administrator, it spreads through the network via Microsoft software installer files. Files of this type are commonly used by system administrators to deploy software on remote Windows computers. The attack removed all of its files and modified no system settings, which made detection very difficult. Kaspersky researchers say that this kind of malware is a generation ahead of anything seen previously in the APT world. Kaspersky wasn't the only target. Other victims have been identified in the United States, the Middle East, and Asia. Attacks targeting the P5 Plus One meetings apparently were launched at locations where talks were scheduled to occur, a similar attack appears to have been related to the 70th anniversary event of the liberation of the World War II concentration camp at Auschwitz. That commemoration was attended by many politicians from around the world. Kaspersky Lab set up a security audit that included source code verification and checking of the corporate infrastructure. The audit is expected to be complete within a few weeks. The attack appears to have been intended to obtain documents but otherwise left computers untouched. You'll find more information on the TechBinder Worldwide website about the attack and Kaspersky Lab's conclusions. Here's some good news. Just in time for Independence Day, you can order one of those giant Surface Hub wall-mounted computers from Microsoft on the first day of July. That's if you have a spare $7,000 lying around. The Surface Hub is intended primarily for corporate conference rooms, but Microsoft might sell a few of them to the one percenters. Microsoft calls it a large screen collaboration device. The Surface Hub, unlike most electronic devices, is being manufactured in the United States. Oh, and by the way, that $7,000 I cited will be for the smaller unit, just 55 inches across, 
just 55 inches across. The true one percenters will, of course, want the 84-inch hub for $20,000. The Surface Hub is more than just a display screen, though. It's a whiteboard with intelligence because it runs Windows 10 and houses Skype for Business, Office, OneNote, and a bunch of universal Windows apps. Hub computers can be used for whiteboarding and video conferencing, but the real power comes from placing a gigantic touch-enabled computer screen on the wall and including OneNote to share the content. At the end of the meeting, people will no longer have to pull out their phones to capture what's on the screen. Instead, the on-screen diagrams can be distributed as OneNote files. The Surface Hub's screen can respond to ink. That's something tablet users have a lot of experience with. So drawing will be easy. Both versions of the Surface Hub include the ability to record up to three simultaneous pen inputs. They also have two 1080p front-facing video cameras and a four-element microphone array designed to provide clear sound while eliminating background noise when it's used in video conference mode. More information on the Surface Hub is on Microsoft's website. Check it out! And check out Spare Parts, only on the TechBiter Worldwide website. An app designed to help with beer and wine is about to expand. Auto dealers could find an application that assists with recalls helpful. And the demand for video on demand is up. Way up. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.